You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. It's been a huge learning experience, and I think what probably I have to give them more than anything else is an adult presence, an adult who believes in them, an adult who imagines a future for them, an adult who cares about the outcome of their struggle, maybe more so, and probably in many cases much more so than their parents or the adults that they've had in their life up to that point. Uh, that's what we all do day by day is we make choices of what our priorities are and making conscious decisions to make those choices and whether it's to exercise, whether it's to eat well, whether it's to spend time with the people that matter. Hopefully all those things are choices people make uh, day by day and not, not just let things happen but make conscious choices of where are my priorities and what am I doing to reach those. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 127, Doctors with Heart, airing for the first time on Sunday, February 16, 2014. We are at an interesting crossroads in medicine. Doctors and other healthcare providers are being asked to adjust their way of practice in significant ways in order to address increasing healthcare costs and other demands on their relationship with patients. Yet doctors continue to show up and attempt to practice with great heart and compassion. Today, we interview two such physicians, Dr. David Lockstercamp, Belfast family physician and author of A Measure of My Days and What Matters in Medicine, and Dr. Rick Martin, family physician with Brunswick Family Medicine and member of numerous international medical mission trips. We hope you enjoy our conversations with these very heartfelt doctors. Thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to sit across the microphone from a fellow physician, and especially a fellow physician who has had a hand in my own um, professional education. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. David Lockstercamp, who is a family physician residing in Belfast with his wife and two children. Dr. Lockstercamp's expertise is in addiction medicine, group visits, narrative medicine, and practice transformation. He is a founding member of the Searsport Community Health Center and in 2012 was named Best of the Best in Medical Practice and Physician in Waldo County, Maine. David's most recent book, What Matters in Medicine, is an exploration of the patient-doctor relationship and what really needs to come out of that relationship to ensure wellness in a person's health and in our healthcare system. Thanks for coming in and talking with us today, Dr. Lockstercam. Great to be here. Thank you, Lisa. I remember first reading... Um, something you had written, although I know you've been writing a long time, but the first thing I read of yours was from A Measure of My Days, The Journal of a Country Doctor, which was written back in, I believe, 1992? The writing began in 1992, and it was published in 97. 
And at this time, I was uh, in my own medical training, and I thought, wow, a doctor who writes, somebody like me, I, c- I can relate to this guy. Not only that, but you also um, are a doctor with a strong Catholic faith, and you're also a runner. So there were a lot of things that you and I kind of related, a lot of levels that I related to you on. This is one of these levels. This is from A Measure of My Days. I cannot dispense happiness any more than a parent can hand it down, but I give to my patients a replenished heart and ears that will listen. I can hold up their fears and doubts and dispirited dreams as we strive toward that mutual goal, happiness. This does not deny medical science and its death-defying feats, but physicians realize that the hardest work begins when cure is evasive and the plan is our only defense. Plans fabricated countless times over countless days by doctors and patients who infuse a diagnosis with different meanings in order to disperse the unknown and light the trail to their recovery. Plans to create order. Plans to sustain hope. This was something, when I was reading this book, this was something that I could really relate to because I think being a physician is so much more complex than many people realize. Yes, uh, it's... Being a different kind of person, I think, to every patient who walks in the room. Um, some are looking for um, advice, and some are looking for paternalism. Um, some need encouragement. Um, some are there just to argue with you <laughs> and to, um, to, to question the value of your work, that is, the medicine. Um, and so to, within a few minutes, try to figure out why the person has come to you today with this question or this problem um, is always the, the most interesting issue. And uh, the ability to um, adjust your expectations to those of the patients in the course of a very brief time is, I think, what uh, defines the maturing physician, the person who is able to, to um, discard one's agenda in favor of something more important on the patient's mind. Which is a difficult thing to do because as we're trained early on um, in medical school, we're supposed to be eliciting the right answers to the right questions so we can create you know, the right plan, we can come up with the right diagnosis. And many of us going in, are we want to do it right? We, we're perfectionists, you know, and we're a little bit competitive in our minds. I think we want to we want to do the right thing, but the right thing doesn't always end up being what we thought it was. Yeah, that's right. Um, I I certainly wanted to be an expert when I left medical school and residency. I, I wanted to have all the right answers, and I wanted to make sure that uh, that I wasn't exposed as. <laughs> Some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, um, phony to my patients uh, or to my colleagues, maybe even more importantly. Um, But the word that comes to mind, I think, best for me now is this notion of helpfulness. Uh, Not patient-centeredness, which I've kind of stepped away from, but helpfulness. How can... How can I be helpful to this patient today? And the, the, the truth is that uh, most of the answers that are important lie within the patient. And if we can just elicit those answers, if we can just bring out and support those answers uh, to their own questions, I think we make more headway for them. So I, I do like, you know, I do like certain things in medicine. I do like um, procedures, and I do like um, the, um, the, the, you know, the occasion to be the medical detective. Um, But even more importantly, I really enjoy 
conversation and spending time with people who are interested in learning something about themselves and maybe adjusting to change in their life. Some of the things that you're interested in are things that have come over time. Your interest in addiction medicine is something that you didn't start out with necessarily. That's right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Living in a community and practicing in that community over time, I think, draws you to the problems of the community. And it was probably 10 years ago now that um, I first began to realize how much addiction was shaping a part of my community that I didn't even know was there. Um, so uh, probably, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, my, a patient was, I was called to see a patient in the emergency department, and uh, she was a daughter of uh, long-standing patients of mine. Um, I came to see her, and she was retching and, uh, and uh, quite sick, um, and had been so for, for two or three days, and uh, soon realized that she was withdrawing from heroin, uh, actually by her own admission, something I had no concept of, and her parents, who had asked me to come see her, had no uh, awareness of or explanation for. This was a very, very bright young woman going to college, the first in her family to go to college, and and uh, that drew me in because she was only a few years older than my daughter. I knew nothing about this. Um, I thought if I can't or my colleagues can't respond to a problem like this, who will be there for my daughter? Uh, if she gets into trouble or my son, you know, if he should uh, get in with the wrong crowd and make some bad choices. So I needed to learn about this. And over the really over the last uh, um, uh, five or six years, we've developed a program in our practice to help people uh, with addiction to um, narcotics, narcotic abuse. Um, and it's been a fascinating journey. Uh, first, um, kind of believing all that came out uh, in the medical literature about addiction and its treatment, basically with uh, substituting one drug, um, buprenorphine for another, that is whatever the patient was, their, their drug of choice was, whether it be methadone or, or heroin or um, prescription painkillers. Um, what I learned over time was um, how people change and why, and of what help I can be in that process. And so we've gone from one-on-one doctor-patient care and prescribing Suboxone really indefinitely, Uh, to now uh, uh, hosting groups and letting these individuals teach each other and me about uh, what is most helpful for them in their recovery. Um, And it's been fascinating. And you develop very close relationships with these people because you see them weekly um, and really hear about the intimate moments in their life and the struggles they're going through and really the enormous challenges they've had to overcome to get to this point. And the other thing you realize is that since virtually all of them have children, that if you don't help this generation, another generation is lost. So um, it's an enormous challenge. Um, It draws me out of my comfort zone and uh, working with people in a way where I am not the expert. I'm certainly not the expert on all of the legal issues they've gotten themselves into, in um, the shame they deal with, um, in early life experiences that are so different from mine. Uh, So it's been a huge learning experience, and I think what probably I have to give them more than anything else is uh, an adult presence, an adult who believes in them, an adult who imagines a future for them, 
uh, an adult who cares about the outcome of their struggle, maybe more so, and probably in many cases much more so than their parents or or the adults that they've had in their their life up to that point. This sort of work is uh, requiring something different than what being in a traditional medical practice requires of us these days. A lot of what we do these days has something called metrics associated with it. It's, it's, it's about getting patients in, seeing them in a timely way, having quality, um, meeting quality goals, like everybody gets, every woman over 40 gets a mammogram and things like that. And sometimes these two things can be in contrast and in conflict. You wrote about this in the BMJ, which used to be the British Medical Journal, this this idea of humanism in the age of metrics. That's right. And, and uh, I really have no quarrel with metrics. It's just the choice of what we choose to, uh, to, to measure. And I think um, we've set the agenda, that is, the medical profession has set an agenda that can be quite different from what uh, practicing physicians see in their office every day. Um, the other thing about metrics is that when you're focused on one thing, it takes your eye off another. And sometime, uh, sometimes when you come into a room with a patient, say a diabetic, and you have, in many cases, you know, six or seven or eight metrics to meet on that patient that day, you almost forget to ask what's going on in their life or why are they there and what's troubling them. Uh, you have your agenda, they have yours. And again, we, I come back to that, that um, our job is really to be helpful to them. Uh, I think the, the opportunity for conversation, the opportunity to explore um, the sources of, the, of their unhappiness, um, these special moments, which is many, many times why they're there that day, can be trampled under by by our urge, by our um, um, strong uh, performance desire to to meet these metrics that have been laid out for us by others. So uh, I I think metrics are important, and I think the challenge for primary care physicians is to take the lead in choosing what are the most important things to observe in ourselves, observe in our patients um, over time rather than rely upon maybe the agenda of, a, of an urban medical center and their research uh, topics or their research uh, grant um, goals. Uh, what, what do we think is important and how can we measure that? I mean, one of the things that I think is very important is FaceTime. How much time do we spend looking at a patient and listening to them? Uh, I think that makes a huge difference in outcomes, a huge difference in cost savings, and it's really not been measured. Another Another really important thing is to measure the power of relationships. I tried to explore that in my book, and what I discovered was there's really not very much evidence uh, for or against the power of relationships in moving people to a more healthy place in their lives. And I really think that's an important topic for primary care to take up. Um, how does establishing a sense that you care about a person um, that you want to listen to their concerns, that you really want to get to know them, and that you want to be with them over time through whatever struggles they're going through. How does that change outcomes? And in what way can we uh, develop these relationships better to achieve those outcomes? So um, maybe in the next 10 years, as I slow down from you know, the, the busy pace of, of medical practice, um, I'll make contributions in those areas of research into primary care and what is most important, not just to the doctors who care for the patients, but the patients themselves.
Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Every now and again, I meet with a client who's not feeling very well. Day-to-day pressures weigh them down, and it's as if they have a cold or flu coming on that never seems to really hit. When I have these conversations, it's usually less about physical health, but more about how what's going on in their life needs to be looked at, treated, and healed. That's when I get into triage mode. I take the individual through a series of questions to get at the root cause of their illness. Nine times out of 10, the prescription to wellness is very simple. Understand that in order to feel better, you need to have a healthy relationship with your money and finances. The regular practice of addressing that stress will help you evolve with your money. Give us a call at Shepherd Financial, 847-4032. We are so happy to help. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Dream Kitchen Studio by Matthew Brothers. Whether your style is contemporary, traditional, or eclectic, their team of talented designers are available to assist you in designing the kitchen or bath of your dreams. For more information, visit www.dreamkitchenstudio.com. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. I'm fascinated by your practice, at least in part because uh, one colleague that you work with is one that I helped educate at Maine Medical Center, Dr. Megan Britton. Mm -hmm. Another colleague is uh, one that I went through medical school and residency with, Dr. Carol Kuhn. Your practice seems to have uh, the ability to work together well enough to make fairly big and interesting decisions. You're talking about changing uh, the way that you see patients, so that you maybe see patients for six hours a day, but then you do administrative work for the remaining hours of the day so that you get today's work done today. That's something that you actually need to have a lot of buy-in for. How do you keep your everybody in your practice sort of roughly on the same page so you can move forward? Well, some days it happens more easily than others, but I think uh, a couple of things. Um, I'm not sure I'm the best leader for this practice, but uh, what I've been able to do is choose, I think, the right people, uh, which, is a, which, is a, which is a big um, head start in trying to get uh, a practice to function as a team. So uh, first of all, uh, I've made an effort to find the right people and, not, um, and, not, and be choosy about that. And uh, I think that's, that's, that's been a big help to our practice. Another is uh, the uh, commitment we've all made 
to what we call, what has been called for the last um, 22 years now, the Thursday morning meeting. Uh, 22 years ago, uh, my then only partner, Tim Hughes, and I um, went out and recruited uh, Mary Beth Leone, a social worker, a licensed clinical social worker, to come be in our practice one day a week because we saw the absolute need for behavioral health counseling in our practice and because we wanted her to help us work better as a team. And the one way I knew to do that was to... Um, uh, host a conversation every Thursday morning for an hour, what we call a check-in, where I learned about the um, what was going on in the personal life and sometimes the clinical life of my colleagues. I think physicians uh, for a long time have been very good at uh, parallel play, that is uh, working uh, you know exam room to exam room right next to others with lots going on in their personal lives and, and maybe some troubling uh, medical issues that they're facing or mistakes that they've made or uh, concerns that they have about uh, certain patients. And so we gave voice every Thursday morning and have for 22 years, as I've said, to those kinds of questions and, and uh, conversations uh, from, from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock every Thursday morning. So building that kind of trust and that kind of concern for one another, I think, also goes a long ways to creating a team environment. And I think, lastly, people who have come to work for us um, uh, have, some, some, some more reluctantly than others, but have all bought into this notion of, of change is important, that we can't sit and do things the same way we've always done them, and that we need to try new things because maybe the old ways are not as effective or not as good as we thought they would be, uh, or because new challenges are, are confronting us, not just uh, our patients and our practice, but primary care more generally. So um, uh, I think they've all bought in fairly freely to the notion of joining the, in 2006, the National Demonstration Project. We were one of 36 practices in the country uh, to look at practice transformation and see how we could promote it in our own practice. Um, in, uh, in 2010, uh, uh, to, to join the main uh, patient-centered medical home pilot, um, to um, right now, so many things are going on, and it's really such an exciting time. Uh, very soon, we're going to have a psychiatrist uh, be a consultant in our office, which is really unusual, but in many ways absolutely necessary for the kinds of people we take care of. Um, we've become a, a federally qualified health center to expand our reach to uh, the people of Waldo County and make more patients... Um, um, available to, uh, for the, the kinds of sliding scales and other financial supports that a, an FQHC can bring. Um, even more importantly for me now is this notion of co-location, um, which is the, the idea of bringing the essential ingredients of a primary care practice together. Certainly, uh, integrated behavioral health is a big part of that. Um, but also um, pharmacy and lab and imaging and physical therapy um, and uh, dietary education. Um, you know, all of these things are absolutely important, not just to have in the same place, which is, which is uh, maybe kind of the mall mentality of medicine, 
but actually working as a team, talking about the same patients at the same time about what they might really benefit from or how, they, how we can help them move forward in their lives. So um, I think uh, my job has always been to bring the right people together um, in the right circumstance, that is, in a place where we can have real conversation and make joint decisions together, and also to push them to take tiny risks, and sometimes major risks, um, off their comfort zone, trying new things with the hope, with the possibility that this could actually make their lives better, and even more importantly, uh, further the mission that we all agree upon, which is taking care of patients where they are. Dr. Luxter Kemp, how can people find out about the books that you have written, A Measure of My Days, The Journal of a Country Doctor, and What Matters in Medicine, Lessons from a Life in Primary Care? Uh, well, probably the easiest way um, is to uh, drive to Belfast and go to my wife's bookstore, where <laughs> these are um, prominently displayed. Um, I think another easier way, probably, for most people would be to go to the, my website. I have a website um, in part to um, introduce the, my newest book, but also to collect kind of all the things that I've been writing about for really the last 20 years. Um, writing has always been a way for me to, um, to collect my thoughts, uh, to push away all of the ambiguity and uncertainty that a, a family and a, and a family practice can bring to one's life, and organize it a little bit better. It's, uh, it's been recreation for me. Um, it's really been um, part and parcel with my work that one really can't, um, I can't perform well at one without the other. So uh, on this website, um, uh, davidlockstercamp.com or uh, whatmattersinmedicine.com, both, uh, both, uh, um, both entries will bring you to the same site. Um, I highlight uh, the book. I highlight um, um, some of the articles that I've written over the last 20 years, and uh, I talk a little bit about where I'll be speaking or um, getting involved in next. And your wife, Lindsay's bookstore, is Left Bank Books? Exactly. So yeah. if people happen to be up in the Belfast area, and I recommend that they go, actually, because it's a really unique community and offers quite a lot beyond just the books and the good family medicine, then they can stop in at your wife's bookstore. Absolutely. And I'll just further the, um, the advertisement by saying dogs are always welcome. <laughs> Well, very good. And I, I do thank you for taking the time to write about your experiences as a family doctor and also for helping educate me when I was a resident at the Maine Medical Center for driving all the way down from, from Searsport to come participate in my education professionally um, and for being so thoughtful as a family physician in a time of great transition. So we've been speaking with Dr. David Lockstercamp, um, author, father, runner, writer, um, thanks for coming in today. Thank you very much, Lisa. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When I consider today's show topic, I can't help but equate it with what happens in my business. I have to remind myself and my team to consider how what we do for our clients helps their businesses stay healthy. We are often there to diagnose problems and prescribe solutions that ease business aches and pains. And we have to do it with empathy, compassion, and heart. And when we see results, 
and our clients are happy and successful, that gives us the deepest sense of satisfaction and gratitude. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. In medicine today, we're all trying to find the thing that really um, keeps us motivated and about which we feel passionate. So I've been fortunate in the last few months to be in practice with Dr. Rick Martin, who has indeed found things about which he feels passionate. And one of these is the work that he does in different in foreign countries. So thanks for coming in and talking to me today about the work you've done elsewhere and also the work that you do in your practice in Brunswick. Uh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Rick, you're, you're from Maine originally. I am. I'm a native, multi-generational. Yeah, so tell me about that. Where's your family from? I grew up uh, close to Bangor, outside of Bangor. My family has been there since I was born, within five, ten miles of Bangor. Uh, my family still lives there, my sister and my parents. Um, and then uh, I went away for college, med school, and residency and came back to raise my family here. And you went to school right in Freeport? I went to high school in Freeport at Pine Tree Academy, right. It's been interesting to be in practice with you and notice the strong connections that you have created throughout the state of Maine, really, but even going as back, um, far back as high school. You know, my wife and I still have a lot of the people we went to school with who are still in the community, who we're still really close friends with, and it is. It was great to come back home to Maine after being gone for 12 years and have really tight connections. After you went away to college and medical school, you came back and, and residency. You came back and you practiced it in rural Maine. This was a big change for you after having gone out to California for medical school. Why did you make that decision? Right. After being in Southern California, where it would take uh, 40 minutes to get to my bank three miles away to, uh, to move to Rumford, Maine was quite a change. Um, I kind of knew I wanted to do rural medicine from the time I was, I don't know, a second or third year in residency and, and prepared for that. So I really only looked in rural spots. And of course, uh, Maine has plenty of those to offer. Uh, Western Maine appealed to me because of the mountains, lakes, the beauty of the area. Um, and that took me to, uh, to the Rumford area. 
you have patients who still travel down to see you in Brunswick, and you've been in Brunswick now for three years? Uh, my third year in Brunswick, and there are patients who still come um, from from the Rumford-Dixfield area. You know, it's a real, a real privilege as a family practice doctor to be involved with people with the birth of their children, with the death of their parents or their spouse, um, to be really allowed into the trust, to be allowed into their... Um, into their lives, and those relationships are strong. And you know, an hour and a half of driving often doesn't uh, doesn't stop them. So. You're also somewhat of a rarity these days in that you are a family practice doctor who still really enjoys delivering babies and is continuing to seek ways to deliver babies. A lot of family practice doctors, although we like to deliver babies, we've it's so challenging from a scheduling standpoint that we decide not to do it. But it's important to you. It is challenging from a scheduling standpoint. Um, Especially when I was in my Rumford practice, it was very, very busy between my regular call and my OB patients. Um, but it's a, you know, it's, and again, what a privilege to be there at the birth of, of a child to go through the journey of pregnancy and all the struggles and ups and downs, and and then to be there at the birth and to and then see the kid, um, see the baby, see the see the child grow um, over time is, you know, it's it's great. I really enjoy it. You have three daughters, and you and your wife have made very conscious decisions to do things professionally and personally that really focus on the family. You arrange your schedule around um, your children's schedules to some extent. You, you both are both of you are very dedicated to your three kids. That's another sort of rarity these days. A lot of families um, kind of go in different directions. The parents do one thing, the kids do a different thing. And as a doctor, it would be very easy for you to say, well, my career takes precedence, but you haven't. You know, I think um, it, we do try to do that. I think it's it's important to make family a priority. And I think um, we're lucky into, you know, to be able to do that, to have some flexibility. I'm lucky that the the people I work for allow me to have some flexibility in my schedule. It's it's a privilege. It's a um, responsibility. It's part of our our role to each other as humans to take care of each other. And uh, who better to take care of than our own children? Growing up, my parents maybe didn't have the same opportunity. My dad had to work 10, 12, 14 hours a day. He couldn't adjust his schedule. And um, I have that luxury. And so I choose to do that, and I um, and I enjoy the I enjoy going to my daughter's basketball game at four in the afternoon, even though I, you know, left the office early. Well, you you talk about it as though it's a lucky thing. I think that, I mean, I know how many patients you see, and you're definitely meeting all of what we call productivity standards, and in fact surpassing them. So you're able to be incredibly efficient and effective and offer very compassionate care to your patients um, and get enough of that done during the day so that you that the, the hospital recognizes that you're a very valuable physician. Not every doctor is able to do that. Uh, choices, right? It's all about choices and what we do. Um, some of the some of the, my choices are I do some of the computer part of work at 10 o'clock at night so I can be with the kids from 4 to bedtime. So after they go to bed, I'll do some of the work either early in the morning or late at night. 
And I think you, I think that's that's what life, uh, that's what we all do day by day as we make choices of what our priorities are and making conscious decisions to make those choices. And whether it's to exercise, whether it's to eat well, whether it's to spend time with the people that matter, hopefully all those things are choices people make uh, day by day. Um, and not, not just let things happen, but make conscious choices of where are my priorities and what am I doing to reach those. You've also made conscious choices um, that have enabled you to travel widely and, as I said earlier, do something that you feel passionate about, and that is to offer care to people in other countries. Yeah, you know, it started when I was at Pine Tree in Freeport as a senior. We did a um, mission trip to the Dominican Republic for our senior class trip. There were only 12 of us in the graduating class, and we raised a bunch of money, and we went and did a building project in the Dominican, and I realized... You know, that's a real eye-opener as a <clears throat> child who's never left Maine hardly to go to another country and to see poverty and to see want and to realize um, how blessed you are here in, the, in, in our country. And from there, it's um, been something we've done every, every couple of years. We've done a trip somewhere in the world to, um, to do either a medical mission or a building project or something of that sort. And you've also brought your children along and your wife. My wife um, in college before we were together spent a year teaching school in the Marshall Islands. So she uh, she had a similar passion already in place. And we've done three trips with the, with the children, one to Africa and two trips to Guatemala. Um, our eldest is 12 and our youngest is 7. So we started when our youngest was 2 um, doing trips. And they love it. They... they um, they think it's the greatest time of the year. So describe this most recent trip to Guatemala. I was fortunate. I came into the practice just as you were getting ready to go. It was around Thanksgiving of 2013. Um, it's something that you planned for, as you said, for maybe a couple of years. What was what was this year's trip like? Well, first, thanks for covering the practice so I could go. That, <clears throat> that helped uh, dramatically. Um, so this year we went with a, a friend of mine who organizes... Uh, he has a five-year plan for the region of Guatemala that we've gone to twice now. He's gone the last three years, and he has two more years planned. This year we went to <clears throat> do a medical mission. There was a building project to build a um, bathrooms for a dorm for a nursing school that's going to be established in the area. And <clears throat> we did medical trip and saw probably 800 to 1,000 patients in six days that we were on site. That's a lot of patience to see for a relatively short period of time. How many people were on this trip with you? So our medical team was about 25 people, um, composed of several nurse anesthetists, a uh, nurse practitioner. I was the uh, only doctor. There was uh, several high school students helping out, which was great. My own children went with me a couple times on the medical days and helped out. Um, total for the trip, we had about 85 people involved in the different parts of the trip. Uh, mostly from the Tennessee area. We were the only group from Maine that went. So long long days with a lot of traveling to remote villages and and uh, two hours on back rutted, muddy roads uh, in minivans and with 25 people in a 17-passenger in a van sort of experience. What types of things were your daughters able to do? So they sat beside me, and uh, if I needed a medicine, I sent them to the guy who was running the pharmacy side and would tell them what to get. If they need, if I needed a bandage, if I needed them to ask for one of the 
nurses to come and do something. I would ask the my daughter to to run and do it. I had them take a few pictures. I was doing a um, a procedure on a young on a young one who had spina bifida and had an infected uh, uh, wound on his back. And my nine year old was with me, and uh, I asked her to take a picture. And she looked at me and she said. Dad, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> it was a pretty funny moment. She just looked away and didn't want to didn't want to see the procedure. It is interesting that your daughters would be so wanting to um, take part in the work that that you do because I know a lot of kids these days don't really have a sense as to what their parents do. I was I was happy to have them come. This is the first time I've had them come on the mission part with me and. Um, and my 11-year-old, she's almost 12, really enjoyed the, the medical part this time and seeing what I do. And uh, previously, she thought that medicine was pretty a terrible thing to do. It was too bloody. It was too awful. And uh, last month, she informed me that she's going to be a doctor. We'll see what she, how she changes her mind over time. But it, <clears throat> I think uh, the experience was good for her. I think she realized this is a, you know, medicine provides us a, a way to help people that's really easy. Um, people have tons of physical, mental, spiritual needs, and uh, and they let us help them. It's uh, it's a real privilege, and and I think she saw that and and was excited about it. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. In 2009, I had just come out of moving through the Great Recession, I guess you might say. Most of us were sort of getting our bearings after the the debacle on Wall Street and uh, the economic collapse. And I remember I started that spring. uh, My business uh, went down by 40% in one year, and so I was scrambling, and I put this exhibit together for the Rockport show at Maine Home Design Magazine, and I I pretty much did it solo by myself, and I found it very healing. And it was all working with the sacred feminine. And it was very introspective in, in, in nature. And one of the things I realized when I work with the elemental forces is that metal does not bend. It's stiff, it's unyielding, it snaps, it cracks. Wood uh, tends to be more supple. It bends. It moves. It expands and contracts. Even the wood on your house can, expands in the in in the wet season and contracts during the dry cold season. So these are things to remember in life. That try to be supple. Try to move with the energy. Try to move with the flow. Don't become too rigid. Rigidity is good, but it needs to be balanced with the supple flow of the wood energy. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast understands the importance of the health of the body, mind, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Jim Graderix of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. At Black Bear Medical, we lead with our hearts every day from our daily fundraisers for the numerous charities in Maine to our everyday customer service. We do what we can do to help our customers feel better from the inside out. 
injuries and ailments can be scary and have just as much of an emotional impact as a physical one. Let our experts look at the whole you and your situation and help suggest the products and services you need to get you back to being you. It's part of our culture and our promise to you. Visit blackbearmedical.com or stop by one of our retail stores in Portland or Bangor to see just how much heart we have. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. Were the problems that you saw in Guatemala very different than the problems that you see on a day-to-day basis mm. here in Maine? Yeah, we don't see a lot of parasites in Maine, uh, and we saw that everyone had, uh, in the villages where we went, pretty much everyone had some sort of parasite illness, and that was, they didn't even complain about it, you just happened to ask the questions that would lead you to that diagnosis, oh yeah, I have that. And you figure out very soon that when the latrine is 10 feet from the river that everyone's going to have that's used as the water supply, that everyone's going to have uh, similar issues. So they just thought that they were supposed to be fatigued and having fevers and body aches, and that's just how life is. And then they would come in for bad wounds from, you know, working in the fields, agricultural accidents with machetes and um, burns, and, and of course the usual aches and pains from doing manual labor, um, the usual respiratory infections. They cook inside their um, huts with without chimneys, without ventilation, so there's a lot of uh, upper respiratory symptoms. And it- we know that in some countries we've imported Western problems. Um, did this occur in the backwoods of Guatemala? So we did two sort of um, two sort of medical days. We would do one where we would go out to a Mayan village where the people are not exposed much to Western influence, and then some we'd do closer to towns where. Coca-Cola and Doritos and the usual vices uh, are present. And then there was a lot of diabetes, a lot of blood pressure issues in those settings versus the the uh, Mayan villages, which was more of the parasitic infections. What about smoking? Was there any role that that played? Um, you know, there was there was a fair amount of smoking in the in the uh, more city city like uh, setting. Not so much in the in the Mayan villages. You described yourself as getting interested in this when you went to the Pine Tree Academy as a senior. The Pine Tree Academy is Seventh-day Adventist. What is it about being a Seventh-day Adventist that causes this sort of interest in helping people? You know, I think there is a culture, um, or hopefully there is and will be a culture of service um, that's not unique to Seventh-day Adventism, but unique to people who <clears throat> care about others, people who um, want to show the world that uh, there's that that we care, that that love exists, and that there's goodness. And uh, I <clears throat> I really hope that that's uh, that's where that comes from. Is just 
if uh, hopefully as Christians, if you claim the love of God, then you want to show that love to others. And, and if it's physically helping them, if it's making a building, if it's um, one trip I did, we just built restrooms for a ch- maternal child health clinic. You know, whatever you can do to help others, I think it's uh, whether it comes from your foundation in Christianity or, or not, I think our, our role as humans is to find ways to help others. And you personally have helped people through these mission trips by using your own money to pay for medicines and supplies and gathering. It's not some big corporation that's coming in that's funding you on these trips. Right. The last three trips we've done have been independent without any sort of affiliation at all. I've done a few trips as part of affiliations, but to most of those still are you pay X amount for building supplies or you pay X amount for um, the medical supplies. Uh, but the last three we've done have been independent, and you kind of figure out, well, I'm going to need this, this, and this. I better buy it and bring it with me. So this is something that gets budgeted into your household expenses over the course of two years. It's something that you and your wife have to agree upon. And um, it's, I mean, as a family doctor in Brunswick, Maine, you make a certain amount of money, and some of that money goes to this. Um, it's true, yeah. It's uh, the Africa trip from from four years ago uh, took a lot of budgeting, and uh, you know, just airfare and five people traveling to Africa and leaving a practice for a month, and and um, it was a significant commitment to to make that happen. Otherwise, the the Guatemala trip we think of it more as our vacation. Instead of spending our vacation money on uh, beach and restaurants, we went to Guatemala and stayed in uh, stayed in a room with other people and dodging scorpions and spiders and uh, and had an adventure yes you described to me one trip in which you um, were in one large room with families separated by sheets mm. and it was you were on the floor and it was difficult to sleep and you got to hear everybody else's nighttime uh, shifting yes. and uh, moving and coughing that was two years ago in Guatemala and that was uh, that was a challenge there were six families in a room maybe 30 feet by 20 feet and uh, separated by sheets and scorpions on the wall and um, Good for the kids to realize how, how nice their beds and bedrooms are here in uh, Maine. So that, that is an interesting contrast between what your kids have, what you have, what we have, and what you actually have to go through to help other people, and yet you keep making that decision. So adventure is part of it, and I think that's you just have to look at it as an adventure. Um, there are, but yeah, it, it's great for the kids to see um, how the rest of the world lives and how privileged that we are day to day. You know, before the taping this morning, I had to choose whether to go to Bard or Starbucks. That was my hardship this morning. It wasn't where am I going to find rice to make my tortillas for, you know, right for my supper tonight. It was, it's a very different world we live in uh, in the U.S. that we take for granted all too often. What are some of the similarities that you've seen um in going to Africa and going to Guatemala and maybe even taking care of your patients in Brunswick? Well, I, people, um, people need help everywhere. I think that's a sim- similarity. You know, there is working in Brunswick, Maine is, is a medical mission. Working anywhere you are is a medical mission. It's, you know, taking, taking the time to help people where they are and what their needs are, I think, is, is a crucial part the similarities from a medical perspective, of course, the third world country is just the lack of resources, the lack of knowledge that drinking bad water leads 
to parasites leads to me not feeling well. And it just, they don't understand that. They, the village we were in just didn't get that, which is difficult. You know, you're, you're faced with that challenge of how can I teach people? I can, I can give them some pills to make them better, but they're going to get sick again in two weeks if, unless they understand this. And that same, con- same concept uh, exists in the office here in, here in the States, you know. You have to take care of yourself. You have diabetes. You have to make changes. If you don't, bad things are going to happen. Um, so I think working with people to help themselves is the is probably the common thread um, between the different settings. Rick, you're a young physician, or relatively young. You've been out in practice. <laughs> relatively young. <laughs> well, you're a little bit younger than I am, so I think of you as young. Um, you've been in, out in practice for a while now, and you've seen, I'm sure, great change, as I have, in the medical system. I think you and I both went into medicine when we were applying to medical school. We both knew of medicine and knew of doctors as being one way, and we've seen a lot moving and shifting. What are some of the challenges that you've encountered and what are some of the opportunities that you see opening up? It has changed a lot. Um, somewhere in my third or fourth year, we just just a simple change from dictating our notes to now doing everything by electronic medical records and typing our notes and the responsibilities um, from a clerical perspective, from a um, from a paperwork perspective, are very different and, and take more time. And we're being pulled away from our patient encounter time to do more of of that sort of thing. Um, you know, and there's pluses and minuses just to that, just to that, which is an example of all of medicine. The electronic medical record is great for searching for data. It's really great for that, but it requires us sitting at the computer screen typing and and having that barrier between us and the patient or perceived barrier which is a challenge to overcome day by day and I'm sure patients uh, understand that more and more as they as they continue to come in and see that computer as part of their visit um, so the technology I think is one the the requirements for whatever, whether it's getting a pre-certification for a CAT scan that takes 25 minutes and two telephone calls, um, those sort of things pull us away from our patient encounter time, which is one of the things I struggle with, is wanting to spend more of my time with the patient and less time doing those things. And do you see that there are possible opportunities in, in what has been happening, um, the changes with Obamacare and the requirements that we're being asked to meet now? Um, yeah, I think we have to we have to look for the for those opportunities. You know, there's pluses and minuses to to those things. The uh, I won't get into the politics of the Affordable Care Act, but you know, there's pluses and minuses. It's not all good. It's not all bad. And I think uh, that's how most things are. And you try to find what are their strengths. For example, you know, a family who's 24 year old couldn't get coverage now comes to see me and and has coverage. Meanwhile, one of my fishermen patients now has to buy coverage and says he can't afford it. Those are obstacles, certainly. I try not to get too excited about different changes and try to um, enjoy my time in the room with patients and and kind of see how things go before getting too uh, worked up about it. But at the same time, I think we have some obligation to be aware of the um, of the current situation and what is our role to... How, what is our role to change or to endorse or to help tweak whatever that, that is. So it's, 
I think it's a challenge. I'm glad there are people who are more politically motivated, who are who are interested, and who are trying to make those changes. Um, it's not my strength. How do the mission trips that you do every other year, how do these contrast to and inform your medical practice on a day-to-day basis and looking forward into the future? Well, you know, it is, it's is—it's like hitting a reset button when you come back. You know, you're, you, I do feel charged up and ready to go and, and, uh, and excited to be back in my office, too. So I think they're helpful for that perspective. The patients uh, in Brunswick, I, what a response I got this time when they found out I was going. And so much support, people wanting to donate their medicines they didn't need anymore, people wanting to give money to help sponsor the trip. Um, people uh, people want to be part of something. They want to help other people. And, that's, uh, and, I, and I really discovered that on this trip in particular with the outpouring of support from my patients in Brunswick. I'm not sure what our next adventure is. We'll see when it comes. You work on a regular basis with the residency program at Central Maine Medical Center as one of the teachers up there. What advice do you have for our younger physicians, whether they're residents and who have already graduated from medical school or whether medical students who are still in the midst or maybe they haven't even gone to medical school yet? I do. I probably give my advice unsolicited a lot to the to the residents. Um, I think a really important thing is to do what you love, to, to have passion about it and to care. And so that's what I try to tell them is don't just take a job, find something that you love and make it yours and, and um, so that you want to go to work, so that, you, so that you enjoy your work, so that you appreciate your opportunity. And if, it doesn't, if that's not happening, make it happen. Family medicine in particular, where there's so many options available to us in how we practice and what we do. So find what you love and pursue it. Rick, it's a privilege to have you here with me today. I know that your patients um, think very highly of you, having now helped take care of your patients for a few months. I think that it's a, it's a wonderful practice to be a part of, and I think that speaks volumes about your approach to medicine and about your approach to living. And um, I, I think it also kind of spills over into the work that you do in other countries. So it's great to know that there are people who are so passionate about the work that they do. So thank you for that, and thank you for coming in. We've been speaking with Dr. Rick Martin, who is a family practice physician in Brunswick. And for those who would like to find out more, they can go to the Central Maine Medical Center website. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 127, Doctors with Heart. Our guests have included Dr. David Lockstercamp and Dr. Rick Marden. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Pinterest and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Doctors with Heart show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, 
Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Our online producer is Katie Kelleher. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belisle on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.